This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Mark Zwanitzer to the program. How are you doing, Mark? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Bob. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Over the past 18 years, Mark Zwanitzer has produced, directed, and or written award-winning productions for PBS, including programs on Walt Whitman, for which he received Emmy nominations, the United States Supreme Court, the Battle of the Bulge, many other programs. And from 1986 to 1992, he reported the book, What It Takes, The Way to the White House, with author Richard Ben Kramer. The Statesman and the Storyteller, John Hay and Mark Twain, and the Rise of American Imperialism, is his new dual biography, covering the last 10 years of the lives of friends and contemporaries, writer Samuel Clemens, also known, of course, as Mark Twain, and statesman John Hay. John Hay, very interesting uh, individual. As a young man, he was Abraham Lincoln's personal secretary, or one of uh, Lincoln's two personal secretaries. He and the other secretary co-authored a biography of Lincoln in later years, and in later life, uh, John Hay served as Secretary of State under Presidents William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, the book, The Statesman and the Storyteller, is published by Algonquin Press. Uh, Mark Zwanitzer, why yoke together these two men in that particular time, the late 1800s and early 1900s? Well, the uh, I was most interested in the time period, but I think it, it's sort of a forgotten and uh, and not well understood period of time that's very consequential in the nation's history. Um, habits of conduct and habits of thought about how we treat smaller nations and non-white nations in our foreign policy were really formed in that time period, and so I wanted to take a look at how that how that happened. Uh, these two characters, these two men, gave me a way to tell that story through their own personal story and to tell it from quite different perspectives, to get a couple of different perspectives on the same events of the of the time. And the fact that they were um, friendly and had known each other for 35 years and the fact that they each had incredible um, personal stakes in this time period, both in terms of reputation and um, and uh, and family, uh, you know, they just uh, they had skin in the game, and mm-hmm. uh, and I thought it was uh, a nice way to 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 have the reader see this story traveling in their shoes and behind their eyes. Well, I'd like to start by asking you some about John Hay and then Mark Twain, but I do want to get back uh, to the the history of the of the period. Um, but I, the thing that strikes about uh, John Hay, among other things, is that as a young man, he was a private secretary to President Lincoln during the Civil War. That must have had a great effect on him. I, I think it did. And, and the fact that he, he literally, he and Nicolay literally, their their bedroom was at the top of the stairs on the second floor of the White House. And in the middle of the night when Abraham Lincoln couldn't sleep, he'd come padding down the hall from the from the residence and sort of shake those two young men awake and, and kind of talk talk through what was going on. I think that what Hay learned um, was the terrific burdens on a president. I mean, um, he understood uh, what a load that office is, and I think he carried that into his later service, particularly as Secretary of State. He saw it as his job to take whatever load he could off of presidents 
off a president's back uh, to help him execute help the president execute what he wanted to do with as with as little um, weight as possible. I believe both Clemens and Hay kind of came from poverty. They came from the middle America, if you will. Uh, and Hay had a variety of jobs, but he ultimately solved the money question by marrying well. Yes, he uh, he made money in a way that was then being popularized by the British aristocracy, which is to say he uh, he, he married a, uh, the daughter of an American industrialist and never had to worry about, about money again. Hmm. And... Uh, at some point, his father-in-law died, or actually it took his own life, did he not? Be- because He did, yes. He uh, well, did. Could you, as I opened the door, can you tell us that, little, that story? Well, um, uh, his uh, father, uh, father-in-law, Amasa Stone, was a, uh, was a railroad engineer who then got involved in, in banks and was uh, one of the, the big players in, in Cleveland had a had a tremendously large mansion on that famous Street of Dreams, Euclid Avenue. Uh, but uh, there were a couple of uh, there was a bridge collapse and a terrible tragedy. And uh, and I think there's some speculation that Amasa Stone was uh, was quite shamed by by that and ended up um, uh, stepping into a tub and shooting himself in the heart. But then his daughter and Hay inherited his money. They, yeah, in fact, their good friend, uh, Henry Adams' wife, would refer to them as tri-millionaires, hmm. which was uh, a good lot of money in, uh, in the 1880s and 1890s. And the money is important in terms of what Hay does in the uh, closing years of the 19th century. Uh, he became ambassador to Great Britain, and then only wealthy people were ambassadors, right? That's exactly right because you had to you had to pay the, pay the freight essentially. You had to rent your own home, and he was living in London, which would have been, you know, at the height of the British Empire. It was the most expensive real estate on on earth at that point in time. You also had to entertain out of your own pocket, and so uh, you had to be quite wealthy to uh, to to take the job of ambassador. Hmm. And while he was in England, uh, he did a great deal. Uh, to forge that, uh, whatever the, the proper term is, the special alliance that exists to this day between uh, Great Britain and the United States. Yeah, in fact, when Hay arrived in uh, London, it was shortly after uh, this very little-known uh, piece of American history where uh, the United States and the uh, and Great Britain almost came to military blows over Venezuela. And uh, and and so the the countries were actually sort of at at odds when uh, when Hay entered mm-hmm. the his ambassadorship and uh, within uh, two years with some help from Admiral Dewey and the United States Navy and their great uh, uh, victory in the Spanish American War, um, Hay really managed to bring uh, Great Britain much closer to the to the United States. I think it was a testament to his personal relationships and his, uh, his personal talents. How did John Hay and uh, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, get together? How did they become friends? Well, they, they first knew one another. They, they grew up, both of them, um, on the banks of the Mississippi, uh, John Hay in Illinois and, uh, and Mark Twain about 50 miles south in Hannibal, Missouri. Uh, they didn't know each other as as boys, but they met late in the 1860s when they were uh, each up and coming young young men, and 
actually when um, when John Hay published the Pike County Ballads, his early poetry, uh, Sam Clemens stood up and said, uh, you know, this is the this is the first instance of that of the Western vernacular in American literature. He he gave Hay credit over Bret Hart, mm-hmm. uh, and then um, when when Clemens was ready to make his research trip down the Mississippi for life on the Mississippi, mm-hmm. the first thing he did was write to John Hay and say, Hey, why don't why don't you join me on this trip? Um, Hay had just had a baby daughter and so was unable to make the trip. But uh, I think that speaks to to you know how much what what each thought of the other. And they might have been better friends, except Mrs. Hay didn't much care for for uh, Twain. They saw him as a coarse man. Yeah, Sam Clemens, and and in fact, he was a bit of a of a coarse man, and uh, he uh, he got in trouble. He he would go look in trouble for trouble when there was none to be found, and uh, and Hay sort of recognized this in him as well. So uh, yeah, but they had had Hay been married to someone else, they may have remained closer. And as we get to the time that you <clears throat> chronicle, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, unlike John Hay, Mark Twain is broke. I mean, he'd made a fortune uh, writing, but he lost that fortune. Yeah, he, he's more than broke. He's, uh, he's, when I start the book in 1895, he's in, in, under uh, the weight of a tremendous debt. Uh, something like in our dollar, something like two to two and a half million dollars that he owes, and so he spends a good part of the early part of this book running around trying to win back the money. He is at that point in time America's most famous, uh, most famous bankrupt, and uh, it actually it 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 cost him a, a great deal the effort to uh, to pay back his his creditors, um, and uh, he never entirely recovered from. From that. I mean, he reco- recovered financially, but I don't think he ever recovered quite personally from the from the effort and the strain of uh, living under that debt. But to pay off his debtors, he embarked on a world tour of the uh, uh, countries where English is spoken and where he had some following. Yeah, he did, and and uh, and he was. Uh, it was suggested to him by uh, Henry Morton Stanley, a friend of his, the great explorer Stanley that uh, there was money to be made out there. Now, unfortunately, uh, Clemens embarked on this trip just exactly at the moment when Grover Cleveland was picking the fight with, uh, with Great Britain over Venezuela. So uh, Sam Clemens spent a, spent a lot of time in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Australia and New Zealand trying to uh, breach uh, the uh, trying to, relations there. Mm. And uh, on this trip, you know, as you say, it was life-changing for Twain in, in, in bad ways. I mean, he was still on the trip when he learned that uh, one of his daughters had died. Yeah, he had, just arri- he had just arrived back in England, just finished this trip, and they were going to, two of his daughters had remained in America during the trip, so they were going to reunite the family for the first time in, um, in a year and uh, in the week before she was to uh, sail to England. His oldest daughter, Susie, died of uh, meningitis back home in Hartford. And it was a, uh, it was a devastating loss for Clemens and for the entire family. And in part, he, he, he had an overactive conscience, did Sam Clemens. And in part, he always blamed himself for, um, for Susie's, in part for Susie's death, because he had uh, taken off on this trip and things may have been different had he not done that. 
On the Historian's Podcast, we're speaking with Mark Zwanitzer, author of The Statesman and the Storyteller, John Hay and Mark Twain, and the Rise of American Imperialism. Uh, American imperialism, if you will, kind of stares um, Mark Twain in the face on on this trip, or imperialism in general, you know, the British variety, uh, too, of course. Uh, but uh, there's... Well, let me say this. I was disappointed in myself that I had not paid much attention to America's escapades in those years. It's it's growing uh, imperialism or whatever you want to say. It's uh, annexing uh, places around the world. It's it's not a—well, is it a history that Americans tend to gloss over? I think it's not a well-known piece of— of history, it's it's not a history we talk about or think about a great deal. Um, but uh, you know, all the um, you know the big, as I said, the habits of conduct and the habits of thought that uh, that that sort of came to be in that time period still echoed down into 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 our own. Um, interestingly, I have to say, in the beginning, Sam Clemens was all for the Spanish-American War partly because we went in with the notion that this was about uh, freeing the Cubans from Spanish rule, mm-hmm. liberating Cubans and giving them their freedom. And in fact, uh, Sam Clemens was living at Vienna at the time, and he said, you know, this is the worthiest war that's ever been fought. It's a worthy thing to fight for your own country, but it's another sight finer to fight for another man's, he, he said. And he also said, I'd, I'd go to war myself if it weren't for the danger. Right. Uh, but when it became clear that uh, that we were not, it didn't look like this was a war of liberation. But by the you know a f- by the end of the war, we had uh, we had grabbed ownership or control of uh, Cuba and Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Guam, uh, and the Philippines, and um, and it didn't look like we were treating the uh, the cit- the people there with uh, with proper respect. And and uh, Sam Clemens. You know, for one of the few times in his life, he really stood up and and very loudly uh, uh, called foul. Mm. And, for example, in the Philippines, after the war with Spain was concluded, uh, America went to war against uh, rebels in in the Philippines. Yeah, and they went to war against the same rebels who had essentially been our ground troops in the in the Philippines against the Spanish. Um, and they had been our our allies there, and uh, all they really wanted was their own freedom. They wanted self-government, and they had set up their own government. They had set up the Republic of the Philippines, but um, I guess we didn't see it that way. And and what really transpired was what we would recognize today as a as a war of counterinsurgency, hmm. and all the things that happened in the Philippines in uh, uh, right around 1900 are things we saw happening in uh, in Iraq 100 years and more years later, right down to the waterboarding. Mm. Now, that Mark Twain is against this, or against this American expansion trend, but John Hay, uh, he's first ambassador to England, and ultimately becomes for President William McKinley and then Theodore Roosevelt, Secretary of State. Uh, so I would imagine... Hay is in favor of this. What What is the case that Hay would make for these policies? Well, um, I would go back to what we talked about earlier, which is that um, the, John Hay's uh, first duty, as he saw it, was to help the president 
do what he saw fit. And so Hay wasn't making policy, but he was executing it. At the same time, I think that um, Hay had very few qualms about uh, what was happening uh, in in the Philippines, in uh, in Cuba, in Puerto Rico. Uh, Hay really b- believed at the at the bottom of his soul that the great hope for the world was um, was re- was something he would thought of as a as republics, which would be free men of uh, of training, of uh, of uh, wealth, of uh, intelligence, running running governments. You know, that's his idea of self-government. And so he actually believed in the mission of spreading democracy. And part of that was true as far as it went. We often, this country often goes into places with the best of intentions and uh, things somehow go haywire uh, after that. Mm. And um, as you say, uh, back to Twain, he's criticizing these policies, but then at some point, he comes to the conclusion that, uh, well, maybe just ask you to say it, but he comes to the conclusion he can't really do that because of his position. He needs to make money. Yeah, well, he, he um, I mean, one thing Sam Clemens understood, as all authors do, is that you don't want to, um, uh, you don't want to upset any potential reader. So that's why he often you know, steered clear of the hottest political issues of the day. But this one he couldn't steer clear of. And he stood up and he spoke loudly and he spoke with great bravery and great courage. And uh, there were consequences for him. Uh, and it uh, it uh, was, was uh, you know, he, he didn't, he was happy to be excoriated now and then. But it was really, I think his experience says a lot about the difficulty of um, of uh, of standing up and trying to hold back, you know, the United States on the march. As his friend Tom, uh, the former House Speaker Thomas Brackett Reed said, you you might as well stand up in the middle of Kansas and and hold back a tornado. And hmm. uh, so Clemens learned that, um, as very many dissenters over the years have learned, is that uh, there's not much margin in. Um, and standing up and uh, screaming when the U- U.S. military is on the march. Mm. And he, and I've misplaced it here, but the, you uh, quote him as saying that in America, as in, I think he said something like in every country, the only people with true free speech are deceased. So he, he put some of his opinions in writing to be um, unveiled later after he died. Yeah, but, uh, you know, in 1901, 1902, he was very loud and very outspoken and, and wrote um, some of what I think are the his best essays and some of the best political essays ever written. One one was called To the Person Sitting in Darkness. But um, there was uh, very little, uh, very little good came out of that. And he... Um, he just found it easier to uh, to retreat. I think he uh, he never stopped writing. Uh, he never stopped laying out his opinions. But he would sort of what he called pigeonhole them. He would put them aside and uh, wait for them to be uh, published another day, as you said uh, when he was uh, when he was deceased. Only dead men can tell the truth. He said, and so um, I think it's a shame he didn't publish more while he was alive. Mm-hmm. But I think that he realized there was just no no margin in it. And now Clemens, or Mark Twain, 
had an encounter with Winston Churchill, which I thought was interesting. They they met. Yeah, um, Winston Churchill was a, uh, I believe he was 26 year old, years old at the time. They happened to share a birthday, November 30th. And Churchill came to uh, the United States on a, essentially what was a book tour. He was uh, promoting both the Boer War and his book about it. And uh, Clemens was asked to introduce him in uh, in uh, New York at the Waldorf Astoria. Most anti-imperialists chose to sit out Churchill's uh, talk, but uh, I think Clemens wanted to take a look at this young man, and he did. And they actually argued a little bit backstage before Clemens went out and, and introduced him, but they uh, they agreed to uh, to disagree, and uh, they actually uh, got along quite quite famously in the, in the moment. But I have to say, um, uh, Twain's... Uh, introduction of uh, Winston Churchill, which is in the book, I think it's worth the price of admission. <laughs> yes. Well, here, I, I have it here. He said, introducing Churchill, uh, Mark, Mark Twain says this, I think that England sinned when she got herself in a war in South Africa, which she could have avoided just as we have sinned in getting into a similar war in the Philippines. Yeah, and, uh, and people weren't entirely sure if... Um, if Twain was joking, or if he was, uh, or if he was serious. <laughs> yeah, well, that I was, think right. Yeah, that, that's the thing about Mark Twain. You know, there's a certain bit of, um, I don't know, shock jock in him. I mean, he's sort of like, in a way, a Howard Stern of the day. I mean, he said outrageous things, but he said them for uh, effect, at least to some extent. Yeah, well, in this time period, I don't think he was joking at all. Uh, you know, there was he was he was in it for keeps uh, in 1901, 1902. Uh, so his his difficulty, his problem was that he felt like he wasn't being taken seriously enough. People thought he was joking. Um, you know, the New York Sun would write, "It must be remembered that Mark Twain is a, uh, you know, is a is a comedian in some sense." But uh, so he found it difficult. To be taken seriously, he always um, uh, thought of himself as a, first and foremost as a kind of a moralist, and secondly as a humorist. Mm -hmm. Back to John Hay, um, he negotiated the treaty that made the Panama Canal possible. Is that? Yes, he did. Uh, he negotiated a number of treaties, and the and the final one uh, uh, was with Pan Panama. The new, the literally hours old, uh, days old, New Republic of Panama. And that was when Roosevelt was in office, Theodore Roosevelt was president, right? Uh, Roosevelt was, uh, was president at the time. And uh, the actually, the, they, they were trying to put the canal through Panama, which was then uh, part of the nation of Colombia. And when Colombia refused to ratify the treaty, mm -hmm. um, the United States essentially looked the other way and allowed Panama to run a revolution and separate from Colombia. And immediately in the days after that, uh, that uh, revolution in Panama, John Hay sat down with the man who was the chosen representative from the new uh, Republic of Panama, which was actually a guy who was French, who was uh, quite um, interested in the uh, financially interested in the uh, in the French Canal Company, which was going to be getting about forty million dollars from the United States of America, and uh, and so they very quickly uh, made this treaty 
which uh, was not at all in favor of Panama, but very much in favor of the United States. And John Hay was a very honorable man um, and set a lot of stock in his own sense of honor and his own personal rectitude. And I think this is one of the few times in his life that he might have admitted that he, he acted in a way that was not altogether honorable. Mm. John Hay did not get along as well with uh, Teddy Roosevelt as he had with President McKinley. Is that fair or not? Well, they were actually great friends even long before Roosevelt was president. Um, But uh, Hay was much more comfortable with McKinley's uh, policies. He was much more comfortable with McKinley's demeanor. Uh, He thought uh, Roosevelt was a little bit of... um, um, sometimes colored outside the, of the diplomatic lines. I mean, in fact, famously, what many people know about John Hay is that uh, he had called the Spanish-American War a splendid little war. Yes, I remember. And, yes, glad you brought that up. Yeah. And, and I think that people generally thought that suggested uh, Hay's callousness toward war. But in fact, what, what many people don't realize is that Hay wrote that in a private letter to Theodore Roosevelt, where he was congratulating Roosevelt on his spectacular performance in the, uh, in the in Cuba in the Spanish-American War. But at the same time, he was suggesting to Roosevelt that, as compared to the Civil War, as compared to like you know what war could be, Roosevelt had seen very little, and that he needed to be a little bit humble about um, the, his own. I mean, the subtext was let's be humble about your own. The performance in that war and about how we conduct ourselves in making the peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was hard for that message to get through uh, Roosevelt's own sense of personal fabulousness. We're speaking with- but they were friends. They remained friends. Um, Hay did think a great deal of, of Theodore and of his, uh, of his talents and his abilities. But um, I think he saw it his job as Secretary of State to make sure he kept uh, he kept uh, Roosevelt within the bounds of, of reasonable diplomatic usage. We're speaking with Mark Zwanitzer, author of The Statesman and the Storyteller, John Hay, Mark Twain, and the Rise of American Imperialism, the book uh, published by Algonquin. Uh, just a couple minutes left. Uh, John Hay died in 1905 while he was still Secretary of State, correct? Yes, he, he was, and he um, he actually was, it's funny, Hay became Secretary of State in 1898, and he said at the time, this job is going to kill me in six months. He, he didn't think he'd last. He actually lasted uh, for about seven years, and he was always looking for a way out, and uh, McKinley and Roosevelt kept uh, roping him back in. Uh, Roosevelt said after Hay died that he was, you know, he was a lucky man to have died in harness. But I actually think the last year or so of um, Hay's secretaryship was uh, was something that uh, probably uh, uh, speeded his death. And I think uh, Roosevelt and his sort of driving um, personality helped uh, helped lead to to Hay's mm-hmm. pro- possibly early demise as well. And uh, Sam Clemens, Mark Twain, uh, died in 1910, right? but after losing a great deal, I guess. Emma, you know, because by then his wife had, had died and his two of his children. Yeah, and, in the, in the course of this period in time, he he um, he lost his wife and he lost two 
two daughters um, and only one left standing. What he worked. One of the things Sam Clemens meant to do at the end of his life was really set up his uh, his daughters, uh, and he worked very hard uh, to pay off his debt, and he worked very hard to uh, to accrue more wealth, which which he did quite successfully. And the and the tragedy is that his uh, two of his three daughters died before he did and his um his third daughter uh Clara had one daughter who who herself died fairly young and uh without children so mm. the so the Sam Clemens line uh uh had has essentially died out and everything he left behind what he left behind was wonderful for the rest of us but um but didn't end up serving his family so well Mark Zwanitzer, author of The Statesman and the Storyteller, John Hay, Mark Twain. I thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudman.